Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Bunkhouse. I'm your host, John. I'm an active duty Marine, so any opinion expressed on this show is of mine, and not of military regulation or policy. Now this show, again, is a little bit longer um, due to the, the guest that I have. He has a much longer career. Also, this might be a little different dynamic too, just because this is my first guest that I haven't directly worked with. So I hope you guys enjoy it, and on to the show. So now that the introductions and the formalities are out of the way, um, I'd like to introduce my next guest, Jason Kirk. So Jason is my first guest that I haven't personally had a chance to really work with. We've met in passing a couple of times at a couple of different summits that we went to. Um, I think the, the most recent one was two years ago when uh, at the, the DMXN Summit up in Quantico. Um, I know you participated in that. I was up there. If you could, Jason, just go ahead and kind of Tell everybody a little bit about yourself and kind of where you came from. Sure. Well, thanks for having me, John. I, I appreciate it. So I joined the Marine Corps in 1996, uh, held a bunch of different MOSs. I was 17 years old, straight out of high school. I uh, didn't work in IT. I mean, I, I was a high school student. I had a job at a car wash and I sold uh, small electronics at Circuit City. So definitely not a background in IT. And honestly, my first third of my time in the Marine Corps wasn't really in IT. It was more telecom. The first thing I learned to do technically was repair telephones that had cranks on the front that you turn the crank to tell the other person you wanted to talk. So yeah, I joined as an MOS that doesn't exist anymore called 2811. It was a telephone and switchboard technician. And uh, when I was a sergeant, that MOS went away. So when I was an 11, I, I worked at 7th Com Battalion, base G6 on Camp Butler, 2nd Div Com Company. Ninth com, and then I was out with the 15th Mu when my MOS changed. I became 2047. That's when they merged the computer techs and the telephone techs. And I did that only for a year or two. And then I went to our career level school, became a 2862. After that, I became an instructor at McSess for a few years. Still one of my favorite jobs. I really loved doing that, teaching entry level specifically. And when I was an instructor at McSess is when I applied for a warrant officer and I became a 2810. So that used to be, well, two MOSs before 0630, I guess. The the speed cell didn't exist. The data officer was a 4010. The current 0620 was a 2510 and the tele was a 2810. And we all worked in different places. And when I was in the basic school in 2005, the Oakfield sponsor came down, pulled us all together one day and told us we're all getting new MOSs. We're all going to be 0600s, which before that, none of us were 0600s. And uh, we're going to become this thing called a speed cell. We're going to work together so we better get to know each other. So that's where I went next. Did that for uh, quite a while. And then I think around 17 or 18 is when we, be, we became 0630s. So yeah, I held six different MOSs across my time in the Marine Corps. I retired last year and uh, held two different jobs since that I'll get into a little bit. So in regards to IT experience, I guess I'd say the first half of my career was telecom. And then things started, the writing was on the wall that telecom was becoming IT. 
and our equipment became IP enabled and went on the network. So we all have to learn different skills at some point. For me, it was sort of in the middle of my career. And at that point, I changed my degree that I was working on to IT. I started working on certifications and uh, had to kind of make that shift to IT. So that's what worked out for me. I know some of your guests are making it after the Marine Corps. Some are joining right now and they're doing it from, from day one. So that's been my, my series of jobs. Um, so I retired last year and we'll talk about this a little bit more at the end, but I was going to take a little bit of time off work. And uh, fortunately for myself, I had made a LinkedIn page, which again, another thing I'll talk about at the end, a recruiter ended up finding me for an IT cybersecurity project management job and uh, working from home. And it sounded like an interesting opportunity. So I, I took that job, did that for a little less than a year. and. That, that opened my eyes to a lot of things. So in the Marine Corps, especially if you stick around for a while, you, you have it in your head that the grass is always greener on the other side, that things are all screwed up in the, in the Marine Corps and in the government. And what I learned with the company I worked with, at least, is that they have a, pretty much all the same problems. They just have different names for it. You know, working in IT in the Marine Corps, it's hard to get the money you need. It's hard to get the attention you need because we're not the focus. The focus is the warfighter, not us. We're a support role. Well, in the civilian sector, I learned they have the same thing. They just have cool names for it. So I worked for a company that built tractors and mining equipment and stuff. And those are called profit centers. That's people who make money for the company. And then there's people like IT that are cost centers. You don't make money for the company. You just suck money up for the company. So if you're a profit center and you have a good idea, you're probably going to get funded. If you're a cost center and you have a good idea that costs money, you just cost more money. So yeah, uh, yeah, I, I learned it. At least in that experience, the grass wasn't necessarily greener. It was a, just a different, different flavor of grass. So another chance popped up to uh, come work supporting the Marine Corps again. And I think I've found my niche. So the first job was a good job, but it had no meaning. It wasn't personal at all. The second job is the right balance. I work on a subcontract underneath Marcor Syscom, and I do uh, planning for base telecom and IT upgrades. So it's good. I get to leverage a lot of what I did in the Marine Corps and bring that uh, background that I have in, but it's a civilian job. So it's lower stress. It's not as personal. I don't have to get involved in the politics of the arguing between different parts of the Marine Corps, which I really grew to dislike before I retired. So yeah, I think with that second job, I kind of found my niche. And, And honestly, I landed there because of how my MOS track took me throughout my time in the Marine Corps and uh, different degrees and certifications that I got to do my best at those different jobs. And uh, it helped me get me to where I am today. Yeah, Jason, I, I think I completely understand when you talk about being at the schoolhouse and that was probably one of your favorite times uh, in the Marine Corps. I, that's where I was when I put my application in as well to become a warrant officer. And I will definitely agree that that was by far my favorite time in the Marine Corps, being able to teach the new Marines that coming in on how to be a basic systems administrator and seeing from from the very beginning to where they don't really understand anything. Some may, but most don't. And then halfway through that cohort of that class and then seeing the light bulb just click on and like, oh my goodness, I get this. And, and then seeing them go out and, and be successful. Um, so yeah, no, it, I think a lot of our community actually was an instructor at the schoolhouse. I, I think you're right. I noticed that too. A lot of warrant officers seem to have come from there. And I think it's a good chance to take your experiences from the fleet and go back and really kind of refine it and dig into the more technical details because 
you don't necessarily think about it until you're standing in front of 10, 20, 30 people and they ask questions. You don't really think about the why behind things. So you, you do that for enough years and it really makes you kind of hone your craft. So you get a lot of practical experience in the fleet. That's great. But a chance to go work at the skill at the schoolhouse really forces you to dive deep into it if you want to be good at that. And I was lucky. I actually got to do three tours at the schoolhouse. So I taught when I was a staff sergeant. And then as a CW of two and three, I was back at McSess as a training officer. And then as a CW of three and four, I taught the uh, 0610s and uh, advanced calm officer course in Quantico. So I got to kind of see it at different levels, which was cool because teaching 18-year-old PFCs is a different animal than teaching 30-year-old warrant officers, which is a totally different animal than teaching 30-year-old captains. So I... Yeah, I, re- I really enjoyed that. That's probably some of the best tours in my career. Yeah, no, I, I, you hit the nail on the head because you, you definitely, like, it makes you appreciate your, your craft 100% because uh, I, I thought I'd been very successful up to the time that I went there as a staff sergeant, and, and I quickly realized it was because of the Marines that I had around me and that worked with me and worked for me. And I didn't know as near as much as I thought I did from the technical side, like the key, the key punching stuff. That I, that I thought I did. It, it's humble. It's very humbling going there, uh, especially if you want to be good at it and make sure that you that you teach the Marines what they what they need to know. So yeah, no, I I definitely agree with that. If you could kind of explain just a little bit, because um, not all the listeners are are Marine have a Marine background, kind of explain a little bit going through the twenty eight hundred field, like primarily what it did, and then coming over to the 06 community, and then that transition from become from being a telecommunications officer to a, a network engineer. Kind of talk a little bit about that transition and what that really means. Sure. Uh, so I think the 2800 thing and 06 thing used to make a lot more sense. It's a little, the lines are kind of blurred now, but uh, the way it used to be, the operators learned how to operate equipment. They were 0600s. They would set the equipment up, make comm work. And when a box broke, they would hand that box over to a 2800 who was the maintainer who would have a soldering iron and a toolbox and the ability to order parts. And we would take the broken box and make it a not broken box. So we were closely related. That has sort of changed over time because the way you troubleshoot a switch is the same way you fix a switch. You know, if a router has a bad uh, interface card in it, the way you troubleshoot it is by swapping it out. And the way you fix it is by swapping it out. So that's kind of changed, and, and that's part of the reason I wanted to transition from that maintainer side to the operator side. Um, in fact, back when I did it, there used to be this MOS that was sort of like in between the maintenance and the, and the operators, and that was a tech controller. And I, I, I cross-trained for that for about a year and a half, and I tried to make a lap move. But at the time, my MOS 2062 was shorter, and needs of the core come first, so I couldn't lap move. And the year before me, a friend of mine who's now retired too. He, he was selected for telephone officer. And I remember when he did that, I said, we can do that. And he said, yeah, absolutely. So the next year I did it. And that was kind of my way to, I, I always enjoyed the operational side more. So that was my way to leave the maintenance side and get into the operational side. The, um, the maintenance side it, for me was fun as a young Marine, because when you're a Lance Corporal Corporal Sergeant with a toolbox and you can show up and fix something and now it works. But when you pick up Staff Sergeant, they take away your toolbox and you manage people with toolboxes. And then when somebody makes gunny, they manage people who manage people with toolboxes. So the more you get promoted, you become a maintenance manager. 
And that's just not something I was as, as interested in after I got a taste of the operational side. Yeah, I, I don't know now working my second job in the civilian sector. I don't know if that concept of technician really works in the civilian world like it did in the Marine Corps. You know, in the civilian world, you're an IT engineer. Uh, you're a network guy, systems guy. They don't call a different person when a switch or router breaks. It's the same person. You know, can you unplug it and RMA it back to the manufacturer and get a new one or not? So a little, little bit different on the outside. Uh, I see a lot of the 2800s transitioning and, and you'll see them want to get into maintenance management kind of positions and some just cross over and get into IT type jobs because I think that doesn't translate quite as well as the 0600 jobs do, which uh, 0600s are pretty fortunate. There's a lot of MOSs in the Marine Corps that, you know, let's say you're an artillery guy or an infantryman or something like that, or MARSOC, force reconnaissance. There's a whole lot of jobs in the Marine Corps that don't translate out all that well. So when they transition, they have to rely on their leadership and organizational skills and that kind of stuff. But the community, the 0600s are lucky that they literally earn certifications and stuff that they don't even have to translate the language that can land them jobs in the civilian sector. So pretty fortunate, I think. Yeah, uh, that's definitely one thing. I've had some some like my, my younger cousins and stuff. They they wanted to join the military, and that's one thing I always try to tell them too. Is like when you're coming in, and there's nothing wrong with becoming an infantryman or an artilleryman or whatever you want to do when you come into the service. It's just you got to make sure that you're thinking further down the road than just for tomorrow to make sure that it can translate into something. And if if you still want to do those things, that you kind of have a plan on on, on the backside of that when it's when it's time to transition. Um, I would definitely say. I've had a, an extremely fortunate career being in the Marine Corps and being able to, 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 to do the things that I've done, be, go where I've been, um, and just learn, a thing, learn those things. Okay, um, so kind of now talking about where you've been, kind of where, where you've gotten to today and stuff, and, and really how those things have, have kind of meshed together, what would you say that you have taken the most, or what have you taken the most from your time in, in the military that's helped you get to where you are today? So I think one of the big things that you just take for granted in the Marine Corps that is absolutely not a given in the civilian sector is leadership. Um, and I saw that a lot. My first job that was completely away from the DOD, there you'll have somebody who was a good engineer and they maybe they ran a project of a few people. So they promote them and all of a sudden put them in charge of 10, 15, 20, 30 people. They don't go to a school to learn how to lead those people. They don't learn about uh, hierarchy of command and span of influence and all those things that are just beating your head in the Marine Corps, they don't learn that. So like my first job, the boss wanted to be in control of everything. And we had about 12 people. Everybody worked for her. There was zero hierarchy. Everybody kind of supported everything. Every task was due as soon as possible. There were no deadlines. There were no priorities. And it drove me nuts. Uh, there was me and one other former military guy on the team. And we talked all the time about it. And it's just something that you don't think about in the Marine Corps. But when you transition, I think, I mean, heck, even if you just did four years and got out as a Lance Corporal or Corporal, you're going to have more training on leadership than most mid-level managers in the civilian world because they don't teach that. So that that's a huge thing that's been invaluable that I think I took that, uh, yeah, I wouldn't trade for anything. You know, the, the ability to manage people, processes, and things is a big one. I I enjoy doing that. And that's definitely something I learned in the Marine Corps. You know, for me, it's it's hard because I did it from age 17 to 42. So I did 
I, I, I think most of what I am and know came from the Marine Corps. So that critical thinking, looking at a problem and being able to pick it apart. I think another big thing that is missing in the civilian sector sometimes that we just take for granted in the, in the Marine Corps specifically is how to get stuff done. Like you get a task, it needs to get done, period. Figure it out. Where in the civilian world, my first job, I was a project manager too. So I was kind of stuck in the middle of five different people working on something. And not everybody was this way, but it was really common, especially for engineers to have a meeting and they agree this can be done by this time. And then that time comes and is it done? Well, no, I never heard back from this guy about this thing. Okay, but what don't you understand about July 1st that was supposed to be done? It's just yeah, the ability to get stuff done is so taken for granted in the military and, and outside. That's where project managers come in a lot of times is they help keep, they, they herd the cats because the cats can't herd themselves. So that, that's been one that has been valuable for me. And then this, this specific job that I'm doing now, I feel like if, if I could create a job for me, that this would be it because I, I sort of need to understand where the Marine Corps is going with regards to IT strategy and how things work at the bases and how money comes down for projects and how requirements work. And then how are IT devices tied together on bases and where does unified communications come in? And so this one was almost like it was purpose built for me. So yeah, my, my whole background's kind of prepared me for this job. And I think that's where when, when you retire or transition, you have to find your niche. And, and like I said, that first job I took, it wasn't a bad job, but it just wasn't for me. The money was fine. The working conditions were great. I worked 40 hours a week. I worked from home. If I worked anything over 40, I got overtime, which was cool. But the job, like I said, it just, it had no meaning. Um, I, I really personally didn't care if projects worked out or not. Um, I did it because it was my job. So the, the second job was my niche. And I think that's a big challenge for anybody transitioning is finding the thing that does it for you. That is the right balance of intellectually challenging while not burning you out, the right amount of money, the right working conditions, all those things are, are really hard to balance. And I got lucky on my second job. I, I think I found all that. So yeah, anyways, I, I took a lot of things away from the Marine Corps. And a lot of those things, I, I just don't think your listeners are going to appreciate until they're out. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Jason, because before we started recording the show, we, we talked about imposter syndrome and we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit more later on in the show but that is 100 percent true and that is definitely the case i think with, with the majority of marines that i know and other service members from other, other other services too and i would definitely say there's there's definitely a lot of things that we do take for granted and in, in, in service and you're right you really won't realize that until you're out i'm kind of in the latter phase of my transitioning for due to my medical board. And I'm, I'm starting to realize a lot of those things myself, um, even though I'm not even out of service yet. And I always tell Marines to, <clears throat> well, I try to tell them is, or at least get them to understand is like your first job out is not going to be, is most likely not going to be your forever job. Right. So don't, don't feel, don't feel like you have to have some type of loyalty to your, your very next employer, because they're definitely not going to have the loyalty to you for the most part nor will the team that you become a part of if you get if you have a chance to be part of a team and always try to find something because that's that's one thing that I've tried to do in my in my searching for for my next chapter is to make sure it's it's meaningful right make sure because we all and 
every branch of service, regardless if you've done four years or retired after 20, right? Like we all had a sense of purpose for our entire career in service. And I think that's where a lot of our, our veterans, they start, they find, that's where they find it hard is once they get out is finding that sense of purpose again. But no, I always try to tell everyone when you're looking for a job, it's not always about the money. Now, is that nice? Yes, absolutely is. It does help. But at the same time, if if you can find something that may be paying a little bit less, but the end goal or what it's doing or supporting is greater than that, then okay, I'll take a little bit less pay if it's if it's gonna be a bigger impact. So no, I I, I definitely agree. We take a lot of things for granted. And I'm and I'm finally and I'm finally starting to realize that. And I try to share that with as many people as I can, especially the younger generation, because they don't understand that the younger generation, they don't all they all they know is even if they didn't join right out of high school, all they know is being treated like a kid and then coming in as a young service member, not age-wise, but just age in service, being treated at like a young service member. No, I, I think you hit the nail on the head there, Jason, with that. And so this kind of this really brings up the next conversation piece, which is great, is taking everything that you've done since joining the Marine Corps, regardless of if it was during your maintaining time or during your operational time or, or during your engineering time and even up to now to what you do today, what would you say, and it could be a couple of different things, you can give a couple of different examples, but what would you say it has been your thing that you've liked working with the most, um, whether it be something technology-wise or a soft skill or whatever the case may be? And like I said, you can give a couple of different answers if you need to, just because of the experiences that you do have. So what, what would you say has been your favorite thing to, to work on or work with? So I, I think the first time I realized this, I was a staff sergeant and I remember I got a, a counseling from the gunny that I worked for. And uh, he, he started out, I, I thought he was insulting me. You know, he said, uh, hey, you're, you're not the best technician. You're not the best staff and CEO. You're not the best. And I'm thinking, damn, here we go. And, uh, and, and he said, but all around, you're the best at all that. And it, it's always kind of, I think, been the way I worked. I, I'm not the smartest guy probably not the hardest working guy. Um, I'm not the most technical guy, but I try to be well-rounded and I try to understand the problem in its entirety. I try to understand the people side of it, the policy side of it, the financial side of it, the technical side of it, and look for those challenges and try to move something forward. I, I think there's a lot of smart technical people out there that aren't interested to understand the political side of the problem. There's a lot of people who understand the political side, but don't care to deal with the technical side. I've enjoyed jobs the most where I get to be kind of at that intersection of the, let's say it's in the fleet of what's the scheme of maneuver for the operation and what are the technical challenges and what are the time and space challenges and like how do we come up with the best solution given the real world parameters that we're operating in. And I've liked that role because I, I get bored easily. And if I were the technical person on a certain little widget, I'd go nuts because I don't like diving a mile deep into one specific thing. So that's been sort of my favorite place to work, which is what I like about this job now. And like, like my last job in the Marine Corps, I retired out of headquarters Marine Corps, deputy commandant for combat development and integrations. I didn't get to do a lot of technical work. 
but I got to go deep on the operating concepts and requirements and money, but I got bored working on that part and I missed the technical part. So yeah, that, that's kind of been my niche. And I think that's where I'm strongest at is when I can work in those different areas. And fortunately it's kind of always worked out for me where there aren't enough people in that area. So I just naturally sort of gravitate to that to fill a void because it seems like everywhere I go, there's either uh, plenty of people that understand the technical challenges or plenty of people that understand the people and organizational challenges, but not people who are interested in or understand both. So that's been kind of my niche. I totally understand that too, because especially the last couple of positions that I've held getting ready and stuff. And I would definitely agree. Like there are a lot of technical SMEs around. There are a lot of political SMEs around, if you would, right? Like the ones that truly understand the the way decision-making is conducted. And then there's the ones that understand how the technical pieces help guide and those, those decision-makers. But like you said, there's not a lot around that understand both sides of it that can help really bridge the gap on that and truly explain, say, hey, look, like you really don't want to do that. Like I get there's an operational like decision to do this thing, but that's not really what's going to be the best because of this technical reason. So there's not a lot that that can bridge the gap on that. And I think it's a, it is extremely important to do that. And one of the examples that I give people and one of my last ones, and, and you know this, especially with my community, the systems side of things, we've gotten a lot heavier on cybersecurity responsibilities is when they see a vulnerability report and they have something that has a really high score uh, on that report, they immediately have knee-jerk reactions and want us to take immediate action on that thing, but they don't do any real true risk assessment for that, right? They don't, they don't weigh the probability versus the possibility of, okay, can this thing, can it be exploited? Yes. Well, how likely is it because of how our environment is set up, right? So again, it, that comes from both sides, not just necessarily like, okay, I need to go put these people over here and provide them these services. But hey, by the way, I can't necessarily provide them everything that you're saying that you want because of this technical constraint. It's hard to find somebody that understands both sides of those things. Like I get what you're trying to do, but we just can't do that. Because there's some that can can talk to the technicals why you can't do those things. And then there's people, like you said, can talk to the operational side and why we need to do these things. But being able to understand both of those, it, it's it's hard to find somebody that can that can do that. And I saw the same to be true in my first civilian job. So I worked in sort of like the headquarters for a global organization. And uh, we were in a about a 2000 person organization that did the IT for the company. And specifically in there, I worked in the cybersecurity division. And uh, our team's job was to, let me backtrack. So everybody knows what IT is, information technology. That's all the router switches, computer servers, laptops. Well, in manufacturing and, and other places, there's a whole other subset that they call operational technology, OT. OT is all that junk on the network that's not IT. And that, that could be uh, manufacturing machines, that could be lathes, that could be heat treat facilities that make sure that metal can withstand certain stressors. Uh, it could be building cameras or access control systems or, or you name it. It's all that stuff that's on the network that's not IT. So our job was to secure the factories because people started to realize that, hey, uh, this company exists to build stuff. The stuff we need to build the stuff is on the network. 
and it's been not treated like IT, so it's at risk. So we were deploying sensors and doing stuff like that. And uh, there were very few people, and I was not one of them, there were very few people who had ever worked in the factories that understood how the factories work, what's really important, and understood the cybersecurity stuff that we were trying to do because you'd have cybersecurity people that thought cybersecurity was the end all be all, but they forgot that that company didn't exist for cybersecurity. That company existed to build tractors, to sell tractors, to make money for the shareholders. So we only had a few people that understood the cybersecurity side and the business side, and that they, they were worth their weight in gold. Uh, they're just worn enough to go around. So it's a niche I like. And if you can, if you, if you have the interest and ability to get in that, I'd tell you that there's usually a shortfall of people that can work at that intersection and look at the cybersecurity guy and say, hey, I get it, that's important. And then look at the business guy and say, hey, do you really care if that thing gets broken? No, it doesn't matter at all. Cool, noted, moving on. Or uh, yeah, that's super important. If that thing breaks, we can't do our job anymore. Cool, let's defend it. Let's cordon it off. Let's find a way to make sure that it doesn't get compromised. Uh, it's an area I've liked working in. Yeah, I, I think that's that's probably been the my favorite thing also is working in those types of environments to where you're in the, that position where you can help influence both sides, the technical side and also the, the business side of it, if you would. Granted, we don't necessarily think of it or, or, or call it the business side. And in, in, at least in the Marine Corps, I'm pretty sure most services are the same way. We, we call it the operational side. But in a sense, operations is our business. I, I, I've definitely liked being in those positions to where I can influence and help guide technical execution in support of the business, but also help guide the business on how to execute and deploy that technical stuff. Because you, you like you said, you have to understand both to really truly be able to, to be that middleman or be, be that, that bridge gapper, if you would. So this actually brings us into our, into our next talking point perfectly, actually. You have, you, by far, you have had the most experiences than any other guests that I've had on my show not just military service experience, but just different types of job sets experiences throughout your career and since you retired. What kind of advice would you give someone? Now I'm, I'm gonna turn this into a two-part question. What type of advice would you give someone that's coming out of the military that has, is coming from an IT background? Because again, this, you, you fall in line with, with this one as well, but coming out of the military, with an IT background, regardless if it's after their first four years, eight years, however long they've been in, what kind of advice would you give them as they start to transition or maybe they have just already transitioned and, and looking for that next chapter? What kind of advice would you give them? So let me start off with military IT to civilian IT. I'm in LinkedIn just about every day and I generally ignore LinkedIn requests I get from people I don't know except for Marines, I take those. And I see a lot of people posting their skills on LinkedIn that aren't gonna mean anything to somebody outside the military. Everybody is a senior advisor. Everybody is an operational manager. Uh, everybody is a leader of communications. None of that means anything at all. Civilian organizations generally think of communications as more like we think of PAO. They're the people who might take a look at this cybersecurity thing that we're working on and write the way the narrative for that to present to the business units. So that's not the communications outside. That's generally not what we're talking about. Maybe it's different for the RF kind of people that might be a little different, but if you do 
if you're a 30 or a 70, if you do systems or networks in the Marine Corps, that's called IT, not communications. I would say read your resume and read your LinkedIn profile and pretend that you've never been in the military and see if it makes sense to you. The word chief doesn't mean much. Honestly, your rank doesn't mean a dang thing. I retired as a CWO5. And the team I worked on had a, uh, a guy that was in the Navy that got out in like 1975. And I think it was like an E3. And it had a guy who was a Navy lieutenant, went to the Naval Academy, did like eight years and got out. We were all the same. Like it, nobody really knew the difference between a colonel and a sergeant. Oh, oh yeah, you were, a, you were a military guy. Okay. So try to civilianize your resume unless you're looking for a job with a DOD. If, if you're doing that, then you'll probably be fine. But I would say that after the military, people are probably going to be less impressed by your military prowess than you think they are going to be, especially if you stuck around for a long time. And like, again, age 17 to 42, the military is what I did. It was me. And it didn't matter at all the day I retired. Again, caveat, if, if you're going to go be a GS-15 working at Cyber Command or something, then sure, that stuff probably matters. But the vast majority of jobs out there, you need to civilianize your resume and, and LinkedIn profile. And the next one is something that you already mentioned, John, is the loyalty thing, the enlistment thing. When you go to get your first job, just get a job. Uh, you're not promising them four years. You're, you're not promising them anything. If you take a job and in week two, your boss comes across in a way that you don't appreciate, you can just quit. That's okay. Uh, you, don't, you don't owe them anything. And, and I think just about everybody on the team you're going to be working with, they're only one good job offer away from leaving too. So it's just a different agreement once you're a civilian. Uh, in the Marine Corps, you owe everything to the Marine Corps. That's your loyalty, that's your purpose, all that great stuff, which it's got to be that way. But once you move on, everything is just conditions of employment. Either the pay is acceptable or it's not. Your hours are acceptable or they're not. What you're working on is acceptable or it's not. And that stuff's all negotiable. And you, if the, the minute you start not liking something, start looking for other jobs. And then when you find one, you'll, you'll let your boss know, hey, boss, this isn't working out anymore. Um, or, or, you know, hopefully ahead of time, you can try to work that out with your boss. But anyways, um, moral of that story is don't think too hard about the first job you jump into. Get a job that gives you what you need, uh, whether that's location, flexibility, money, and Keep an open mind to other opportunities because you are not locked into four years. Um, also, and this is one that's going to kind of play into the next one too, is this whole idea of a subject matter expert. I think we take that very seriously in the Marine Corps. I, you know, not, not to, I don't mean to brag here or anything like this, but when I was an 0610, I was a CCMP voice. I wrote Cisco UC into the curriculum of several courses. I spent thousand hours teaching it. And then I went to a MEF G6 and I planned it. I was, I was pretty good at it. I would not call myself an expert. I was pretty good at it. <laughs> what I learned in the civilian world is people don't think about things that way. P people take it pretty lightly, calling themselves the SME or the expert in a thing. So if you've dealt with a thing and configured a thing before in the Marine Corps and you're somewhat comfortable with it, you're proficient. But don't sell yourself short. Don't make it be like, well, you know, yeah, that wasn't really my job because I was an 0630. So uh, that was really an 0670 thing. And I only did it a couple of times. No, that's not part of the equation. You did it. You know how to do it. Yes. But don't don't cut your own legs off out from under you because the people you're competing with for those jobs aren't going to do that.
in fact, there were things that, that the first job interview I had that looking at the job posting, I, I saved it as a Word document and I highlighted it. If I knew I was good at it, highlighted it green. If I knew I knew nothing about it, it was red. And if I was like, okay, it was yellow. I went to, uh, I did a little bit of research. I spent a couple of days Googling stuff, making myself smarter on the red and yellow things. And during the interview, I spoke intelligently about it, got hired. And I realized once I got the job, none of that crap mattered. The fact that I even knew what it was and how it fit in the architecture, good. That, that's, that's all they really needed. But what they said in the job posting was that I had X amount of years experience and expertise doing that thing. Anyways, don't sell yourself short. You you have more skills than you know, because we're pretty mean to each other in the Marine Corps. So uh, <laughs> we even to ourselves, we downplay what we know and downplay what we do. Don't do that to yourself. For the non-IT to civilian IT, uh, I'd say that that SME thing still applies. If if you get a fellowship on your way out the door or you sign up for a certification course and you get to do something like that and you have some experience with the thing, you would never want to lead with, well, you know, really I was an artillery guy, but I took a course on a thing. No, leave that out of it. Don't don't cut your legs out from underneath you. And, and for the non-IT people, I, I'd say if you really wanted to jump into civilian IT, you have to have some kind of foundation. I would assume for most jobs, at least where I've worked so far, and you've got a ton of benefits, use them. Your GI Bill is awesome. When you get out, get a job, get some kind of job that pays the bills, use your GI Bill, take some college, take some certification classes. Maybe, maybe don't like, if you don't want to, maybe don't go to school for four years, but you could take some certification classes, get some skills, land a job suitable to your skills, keep using your GI Bill, keep going to school, keep working your way up. So you can definitely make that transition. And something I've noticed too, in the Marine Corps, it's very common to do 20 to 30 years of a career and work in the same field. People jump around a lot in the civilian sector. Uh, there's people that might work in one career for five years and make a total jump to maybe they go do sales for five years. And after that, there's a particular area like cloud that they get interested in. And now they take a course and they're a cloud subject matter expert. People hop around and transition a lot more in the civilian sector than they do in the military. So if you did four years as an 0311 and you're getting out at age 22, you know, you're not set in stone. You don't have to be a security guy for the rest of your life. You can transition to the next thing. That's totally acceptable. So for the military people, don't sell yourself short. And for the uh, non-IT to civilian IT, I'd say use your benefits and uh, get some certifications, look into a fellowship, go to college, things like that. And for... Um, for both of you transitioning, I, I couldn't recommend more making a LinkedIn profile. Uh, what I did is before I even made my profile, they offer a class on base at the Transition Readiness Center. And at least up in Quantico, the lady that taught it was awesome. We built our profile right there in the class. It was like a half a day. And um, I, what I did before that, I, I wrote my resume. So at least going into that, I had a resume. It made building my profile easier. And I can tell you that my first job, it found me just through LinkedIn. And uh, I got that job without ever applying for a job. And then the second one was a friend of mine on LinkedIn, uh, I, the, who I had mentioned a while back, like, hey, this civilian life is kind of neat. I miss the Marine Corps a little bit. I'd, I'd like to, I mean, don't get me wrong, I don't want to wear green again, but I'd like to be supporting the Marine Corps. And a couple months later, he said, hey, talk to this friend of mine. He's got something that might be right up your alley. So same thing, me and his friend talked. And he explained what the job was. I kind of told him that, yeah, you just asked for me. That's that's right up my alley. 
and they wrote the position and hired me for it. So anyways, both of my jobs sort of found me on LinkedIn. So I, I couldn't overstate how important LinkedIn is. And, you know, on the other side, when it comes to hiring, uh, I've dealt with that a little bit when I was on active duty with uh, civilians. And I can say with like actively applying for jobs, the couple times I've, I've had to hire, there were at a minimum 10 applications coming in for one job. So uh, I, I think the, the old saying, you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know is somewhat true. And through LinkedIn, you can know a lot of people. Now, don't get me wrong, you got you to gotta know some stuff. But uh, make a good LinkedIn profile, uh, make the right kind of connections on it, and uh, take a course on it if you're in the military because it's free. And what the heck, if nothing else, it's a half a day out of work. And it might open some doors for you. Yeah, that's something I tell the Marines around, around me, too, is making sure that you're building out a LinkedIn profile. And you hit it a little bit ago, too, is civilianize your experiences. Because like you said, no one outside of military service is going to understand what a data systems administrator is. Because if you look at job, I've been looking at tons of job postings now because I'm, I'm starting to, I'm getting ready for my next chapter. A systems engineer for a company isn't the same as a systems engineer for the Marine Corps, right? Because in the Marine Corps, a systems engineer is an IT engineer or an architect, right? It's IT systems architect or IT systems and security architect, whatever you want to call it. In the civilian world, a lot of times the systems engineer is they they build that specific system or help build and plan for that specific system that that company provides, right? Like a systems engineer at Raytheon doesn't do IT planning, right? They don't they don't do that at all. They do the planning and engineering for whatever specific project that they're a part of, and that is it. So. That's one thing I definitely try to tell the Marines is that try to try your best at finding the civilian terminology for what you've been doing and also doing other profiles other than just LinkedIn too. So like I've gotten a ton of calls from recruiters because I posted my profile and have my resume up on clearancejobs.com. If you're looking at trying to do more of a DOD side of things to where you are going to be required to have some type of security clearance in most Marines, at least that I know have some sort of security clearance already come because that's part of the requirement of their job. That's a good place to start out too, is on clearancejobs.com. I've gotten calls from, I would probably say at least 10 to 15 recruiters in the last three months. And it sucks because I have to tell them, Hey, look, like I don't have a retirement date yet and all this other stuff, but it puts me on their radar. They keep me in mind because I went through countless reviews of my resume before putting on those types of, of websites. And depending on who you ask, you're going, you could send your resume to five different people and you're going to get five different types of feedback from them. So, and that's exactly what I did. I, I sent it out to multiple people and had them review and I took the collectively of what they were giving me guidance on or making recommendations on and kind of shaped it into my own with all of that type of, type of advice. Um, and I think that's definitely helped me out a lot. And I would definitely say using your GI Bill, absolutely, you should do as well. Now, in my case, I'm, I'm not looking at using my GI Bill. I have it signed over to my kids so they can use it, which is okay for me because in my instance, um, if, you have, if you rate 20% or more from the VA and disability, um, you can qualify for the Veterans Readiness and Education Program that they have. 
where they pay 100% tuition for whatever you're wanting to do as far as degree-wise. They pay for books and supplies as well. So that's one thing like your GI Bill and tuition assistance doesn't pay for. Matter, They just bought me a, a brand new laptop. The VA bought me a brand new laptop for my, for my college courses that I'm going through now. And I'm not even transitioned yet and I'm still being able to use that use that resource. They also give you the, the average BAH as well. So once I get out, I'll continue to get my BAH through that program. And they pay for certification training and exam prices as well. Um, if it's required for a, a job opportunity, because that's how they're going to do it. That's how they're going to kind of shape what they're going to pay for is you could be coming. And that's actually a really good resource, especially for the non-IT or cybersecurity uh, service members trying to transition into something like that. And it really piques their interest. Like using that program through the VA, they will pay 100% for your college education or certifications or whatever. And that's really what it's for is for transitioning into a different skill set. That's, that's the primary purpose of that, that program is, is transitioning to a, a different skill set or expanding on a current skill set that you just haven't had the opportunity to be able to do. So I, I think just using those types of resources and, and like you said, building that professional network really goes a long way. I will say I've learned that there's a lot about a lot of times who you know versus what you know. But at the same time, like you said, is you're still going to need to know the things, right? Because the who you know gets a foot in the door. But then if you don't know those things, that that who you know doesn't really mean anything at that point. I think I think the who you know where that helps is there's a lot of things about you that aren't necessarily going to come across on your resume. Like that person that knows you might just know that, uh, you know what, John is just the right fit for this team because, because, because he's John. A, a resume won't say that. So that person that you know can get you the interview. And then in the interview, you can convey that I'm who you want. But if that person gets you the interview and you blow it or you ace the interview and get the job, but you can't perform, you're still not going to last long. Because I, I would say that, that that's a big difference in civilian jobs too, is that they don't have the security that a term in the military does or a GS job does. If you're not hacking it as a civilian, it's a lot easier to make you go away. So that does sort of change things. Like I, I noticed both jobs I'm on now, any unit you've been out of the Marine Corps, you have your 10%. You have those people that are just a burden. Uh, I haven't seen that because if you're a burden, you're gone. Uh, you don't work there anymore. So, yeah, you're right. You got to perform. And you mentioned something else I just wanted to touch on recruiters. I didn't really get this until I had been dealing with it for a while. And in fact, after I, the recruiter found me, got me the interview, got me the job. And then he was trying to find somebody else and was talking to me about, do I know anybody? I, I finally, it dawned on me how this works. So if a recruiter finds you, you don't actually, you're not going to work for the recruiter when you get a job. That person's job is just to keep a stable of smart horses, the smart people who he can throw at an opportunity when they come up. Like what happened as I was leaving my last job, they wanted me to screen the applicants for my replacement. So there were three different recruiters. Each had a person that they thought was the perfect fit for that job. So each on their own, they went out and find a person and told that person, I've got the job. It's just for you. You're going to be a cybersecurity project manager at this company. Here's what you're going to work on. And that person's like, yeah, I'm interested. Really, that job wasn't just for them. That was just that recruiter's horse in the race. So then like, I, I reviewed those just as a courtesy for my boss. And she's the one that did the interviews. But um, she 
chose the one that she wanted the best and the other two recruiters people didn't get the job. So just understand that when a recruiter says they have a position for you, they're not the hiring authority almost ever. So just kind of understand what you're getting into there. And there is absolutely nothing wrong with talking to multiple recruiters at once about multiple positions at once. Don't think that because you're talking to recruiter A, that you have some kind of loyalty and he's got something in line for you. So you can't talk to recruiter B because uh-uh, that loyalty would only be going one way and you're going to, you're going to miss an opportunity. Uh, that's something I, I, I've, I started realizing too. And, and I think that goes back to one, our imposter syndrome that we have growing up in, in the military and the, just the loyalty that we are, that's driven into us that we, that we have to have, to be successful at a place. I think that's really what sets us sets service members up for failure for certain situations like that is because you start you like, Oh, nope, I'm talking to this one person about this one job. I can't talk to anybody else because this is like to be the perfect job because he said it's the perfect job for me based off of what he saw on my resume, which he probably just glanced at your resume, like skimmed it and saw some keywords. It was like this guy, perfect fit. And remember that recruiter is going to get a bonus when you get picked. That's how they get paid. So again, it's their job to keep a stable of the smartest, most competent people they can. So when a company does need a person and they go to that agency, that person could say, oh, you need John. Hey, look at John. And John, and they'll even get the job hosting and sit down with John ahead of time to say, okay, here's what they're looking for. Let's kind of like do a mock interview. Because And you're thinking, oh, they really like me. They're really looking out for me. No, no, no he wants to get paid. Because if John gets the job, that recruiter gets a, a chunk of that. So don't get me wrong. Recruiters aren't bad. I'm not trying to badmouth any of them. But just understand when you're getting into this, what their interest is and who they really represent. Yeah, so you don't wind up having some kind of misplaced loyalty and missing some opportunities. Talking about stuff like the, the soft skills stuff that we don't necessarily realize or we take for granted in the, in the military. I think this really kind of helps kind of bring this in, in, into kind of now kind of asking you, is there anything else that you would like to talk about or talk on um, and give any kind of advice or guidance for, for the listeners or anything? Yeah, I got a handful of things. So this, this first one, you know, this, this podcast is great. Um, it's, how do you kind of break into IT or leave Marine Corps IT and get into civilian IT? But what I would tell somebody who's transitioning is take it a, take a step back and look at it from more of a 10,000 foot view. And you need to figure out what's important to you. And there is no right answer. There's no wrong answer because different things are important to different people. Like for me personally, I have my pension. I, I have a source of income. So money wasn't the motivating factor. So to me, for example, a job in sales, where I would pull out my Rolodex of old contacts and say, hey, John, how you doing? Let me tell you about my latest product. Uh-uh. That's, that's something I'm not willing to do. Um, I'm not willing to put relationships at stake to make even more money. So I, I, I think you need to take a look at what motivates you. And again, not a wrong answer. Maybe you are money motivated. I've had people who I knew who retired and wanted to go make $400,000 a year, and they did it. And they had to do a job that I would never be willing to do. But for them, it was worth it. So are you money motivated? Do you like authority? Like me personally, I I don't want that. I don't want to be in charge. I don't want to be an important person. I just want to contribute. That's it. 
I've been in charge of groups of people. I've been in important positions for me and I did well at it, but that's not what makes me tick. I, I'm more of a behind the scenes guy. Uh, I don't want to be the face of things. Uh, is location important? So the deal that my wife and I had for more than 20 years together around the Marine Corps was that relocation after relocation, she'll come with. But when I retired, it's her turn. She gets to pick. So when it came time to retire, we looked at the map for years and we played around with different locations. And, you know, what would it take to retire and live in Hawaii? What would it take to retire and live in Montana or Maine or you name it? All We went all around the country. And finally, she said, well, what about moving back by my family in Illinois? You know, I left at eight. She left at 18. She joined the Marine Corps, too, and married me and followed me around forever. So she wanted to move back to rural Illinois. And now as I look up from my computer, I see a cornfield across the street from me. And this is where I live. So for me, location was actually the number one factor, not willing to negotiate. It would take an obscene amount of money to make me relocate, something that I'm not worth anyways. So yeah, is location important to you? How about flexibility? You know, do you have a kid that is home out of school because of COVID? Or do you have little ones at home? Or do you have other obligations where flexibility in your schedule is important? So I'll tell you, this is something I hated about my first job. I learned that I like some autonomy in my day where I'm given a hard project and I can research and think deep and come up with solutions. My first job as a project manager I spent all day, every day, hopping from one call to the next, putting out fires. Hated it. Couldn't stand that. Do you need to work on something personal, personally fulfilling, or do you care about that? Uh, so bottom line, figure out what motivates you, and you got to be honest with yourself. Like, don't, don't sit here and tell yourself, money doesn't matter. I just want to do fulfilling work, when really, you want a yacht, and you want to live in a super expensive area and have an awesome house. If that's what you want, get after it. But figure out what makes you tick, and that'll help point you in the right direction. Next, we've kind of we've kind of beat this one up about civilian jobs and loyalty. But again, when you get a civilian job, re remember that you and everybody else you're working with is really like always two weeks away from being gone, because all it takes is the right job offer to come along to your boss or your subordinate or anybody, and they'll find something more meaningful to them, whether it's money or location or anything else, and, and they'll move along. Next, and actually, so I'm in kind of a weird position now. I work for a subcontractor to a subcontractor for uh, this Mark Horse Discount contract. So I've got a lot of bosses. <laughs> I've, I've got my supervisor at the direct company who pays me, um, but I don't get my taskings from him. He kind of does the care and feeding and makes sure my computer works and I have what I need, but he's still a boss. And then I have my boss at the next up subcontract who gives me my taskings. And I remember I was talking to my first level boss who they're in different organizations and they don't work for each other. So it's an interesting construct. And I was telling them about our plans for travel next year. And I might have to travel overseas for a certain amount of time next year. And, and, and he reminded me, Hey, Jason, you're retired. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to go anywhere. So if you don't want to go overseas for that many years, just tell them no. That's okay. And I, I'm still not used to that. I'm still kind of used to whatever the boss needs, I'm going to deliver on. And um, I, I remember my, my first job, it was an hourly position. And I was getting to the point where I kept getting more work put on me. And I was starting to go past my 40 hours per week. And I finally went to my boss and said, hey, uh, 
I'm going to need some priorities because I have this many hours and you're giving me this much work. And last week I already put in an extra few hours and she just shrugged her shoulders and said, bill me for it. Work whatever you got to work and just charge me. Huh? So yeah, you, you don't. And then I, I finally went back to her later and I said, uh, I don't want to charge. You. I don't want more than 40. I want 40 hours of work. And then I'm want to be done and go have my life. So she did. She pulled work off of me and gave it to somebody else. So just things are different in the civilian world. Like, like th there is a perfectly acceptable answer of, I will not have that done by next Tuesday. Well, why not? Because I have 20 hours left in the week and that's 40 hours worth of work. Huh, okay, I'll get an extension or get somebody else to help you. Like, unlike the Marine Corps, which, what part of get that done by Tuesday didn't you understand? Did you go home last night? Yeah, then you screwed up. That, that does not work that way in the civilian sector. The next thing I wanted to touch on that I don't think enough people think about you need to understand financially what is enough for you. So let's just say, for example, and I, I've known people that are fairly senior in the Marine Corps that were retiring, and it never dawned on them that they might not even have to work. They just, you work till you're 65, because that's what we do in America. But just as a silly example, let's say your family is comfortable off 75 grand a year. And wherever you're going to retire, like, let's say you're me and you move back to rural Illinois and $75,000 a year is one and a half times the, the average here. So you're doing pretty well off that. And let's say your pension and your VA disability come out to 60K a year. You need to just at least know that you only need to make 15 grand a year to live the life you want to live. So maybe you don't even need to work full time. Maybe you take a job as a substitute teacher at the school across the street and you work two days a week. Just consider the possibility that you don't need to work. Now, I'll, I'll tell you that I failed at that. My, my plan was to retire and not work. And after a few months, I realized I'm not ready for that. I need some kind of problems to solve and some kind of team to work with. So I went back to work. But uh, I can tell you now from experience that working because you want to, not because you have to, is an entirely different thing. Like people that are stressed that they got to perform to get a raise because they got a kid going into college soon. That's different than working because you just enjoy being around the team and solving problems. So I can say that I'm much happier now working because I want to, not because I have to. But anyways, the moral of that one, at least take the time to consider your current lifestyle, the lifestyle you want, how much money do you need to make to do that? And uh, Jason, consider like your jobs accordingly. I'd like to make a, a touch on another point on, on kind of what you're talking about there too, is also understanding that let's say you want to make 90,000 a year, 90,000 a year in Jacksonville, North Carolina, it's pretty good money because of the cost of living. But let's say you, you set that as your salary, basically, I, I want to make $90,000, but you're looking to move like Dallas, Fort Worth area, Right or or down to Orlando, Florida, or something like that, to where the cost of living is is much more. That ninety thousand dollars is like making forty five thousand in Jacksonville, right? So I think looking at the other side of it too, not just what you're comfortable with or what you absolutely need to make, but also looking at the area like where you're trying to go to. What do you where do you want to go? Especially if location is a, is a big cause or a big driving factor about what you're going to do with your next chapter, the next chapter in your life is. You got to look at the cost of living pieces, too, because what you think is good money because of your lifestyle that you've gotten in in service may not may not actually cut it once you get out to where you want to be at. Right. Because 
I, and like you said, there like you were looking at different places and stuff, and then finally come come to a decision point. And same thing for me and my wife. I I told her that if we move when I retire, I don't want to move for a very long time. The, the, like our kids are done moving. Like they don't want to move, but I told them I was like, it's a very big possibility that we may have to move because we just might not find the opportunity or the job where we're at currently, just because around here, a lot of IT jobs are already filled because of transitioning service members, because being around a military base, there's already a lot of transitioning service members that are taking those positions. Um, so I told them, I was like, we might have to move, but it, it could be the last one or it would definitely be. And if we did move again, it's because we wanted to, not because somebody's telling us to move. But yeah, yeah, I definitely think that's important too. Is is looking at the cost of living versus because that ties back into the lifestyle that you want to have. What type of lifestyle do you want to have? Do you just want to be comfortable and and be able to do the minimum and still be able to provide that maybe the ninety thousand dollars depending on where you're at, or it, that may be one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year because of where you are. In in the two jobs I've gotten, that's actually how they usually ask the question is how much money do you need? Which is really hard to answer. So for me, my second one was easier, my second job, because I was able to say, well, I make this much now. And to make it worth my time to leave and worth the risk of leaving, I need to make this much more. And they came back and said, we can do that, which makes me kind of wonder, should I ask for more? But um, <laughs> I got something you know, to talk about once you get done with this. <laughs> okay. And then to, um, to your, what you're talking about, think about different areas. I'm the money person in my family. Uh, I'm the one that thinks about that. Not my wife doesn't think of things necessarily in dollars and cents. So the way we played that game with locations was I had to explain the locations in terms of how long I'd have to work and what kind of lifestyle we'd have. So when it came up with Hawaii looks pretty, what would that take? I would research houses and I'd say, well, we could live in that house and I would need to work for the next 15 or 20 years before I can retire. Huh, that's a long time. Yeah. What about, uh, you know, we'd taken some vacations to um, Montana and it's beautiful. We loved it. So we, we, okay, we can have that house and I'd need to work for 10 years, you know. And then when it came to Illinois, I did some research and I said, well, we can live in one of these houses and I could retire right now and never have to work again at age 42. That was kind of cool. So, but that makes the question hard when an employer says, how much money do you need? Well, hell, honestly, zero, but, but I'm not going to work for you for nothing. So yeah, that, that's still something I think I, I've only done it twice now and I, I, I'm not very good at it. And, uh, and it's hard too, because in the civilian world, there's no pay charts. Like in, in the Marine Corps, if you're a W3 or an E6 or an E2, you know, for a fact, you can look at the pay chart and say, you know, uh, I can in two years be here and here and here and make this and my lifestyle will be this. And you know when your raises yeah. are coming? Yeah, absolutely. Where we're now, I honestly, I could not tell you if I'm being paid fairly or not. I have no clue uh, because we don't talk about that at work. Nobody wants to bring it up because you don't want to ask somebody else and find out you're making more because then you'd feel guilty. And I actually had this come up um, when I was on my first job and that recruiter said, hey, do you know anybody who does this kind of thing? It was like my role when I was in the Marine Corps is more technical. And I said, well, maybe let me ask around. What are you, what are you looking? What are you looking at for pay? And I found out it was like 20 grand a year more than I was making in my job as a project manager. And that made me kind of, it sort of took the wind out of my sails in that job because I thought I was being compensated well. 
And then I realized the technical people who I was herding around all day, um, they were making a lot more than me. And that really kind of made me lose interest in the job. So salaries get to be a tricky thing in the civilian sector. Yeah, I definitely, I think that it really goes back to, like we talked earlier, like the whole imposter syndrome. Don't ever undersell yourself because like you are much more viable than you think you are coming out of service, whether it be the four years or whatever. When I first started looking at jobs, they were like, well, okay, well, what, what salary range are, are you looking at? And I would tell them and stuff like that. And then I started getting some advice to say, hey, like, when I ask you that question, return it with a question, like ask them based off like, so now what I do is like, okay, so like, I'm not really going to give you an answer, but what would you see a range of salary based for this position based off of what you see in my resume, right? You you contacted me because you saw something that piqued your interest. So what do you think that salary range should be? And I will definitely say, especially when I first started doing that, because I would start thinking of numbers in my own head about like, if I did answer the question and when they would come back with something, it was always much more than what I had planned out in my head already every single time. And again, I think that goes back to the imposter syndrome to where I don't know if it's, we don't think we're valuable. I, we just don't know what we're truly worth, right? Because you are definitely worth a lot more than you think you are because worth in, in the Marine Corps is different than worth outside of the Marine Corps, at least outside of, I would say military in general, because what you say you're worth in the Marine or in, in the military doesn't resonate or translate into monetary value, right? It, 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 it it translates and usually gravitates to more work for the same amount of pay, right? A lot of times when, if you're, if you're worth it in the military, it, it turns out to be more work with the same amount of pay that everybody else is getting to not do that work. Yeah, I was just to say, I had one more thing I wanted to add. I like personally, I, I always, I hated getting saluted. I hated being called sir. So I don't think I've had a problem with this, but some people identify very much with their rank. Some people have their rank on their car. It's a big deal. And I'll tell you, when you retire, nobody gives a damn. Nobody cares that you were a sergeant major or a CWO5 or a colonel. Don't care. Uh, What do you do now? Um, Yeah, you used to be in the military. Yeah, whatever. Cool. So if you identify tightly with your rank, and especially if you're going to leave the DOD, you better learn to put that away because nobody's going to look at that eccentric and, and like think it's they're not going to appreciate that. That's going to be weird. And you're going to come across as overbearing and somebody people don't want to work with. So it it doesn't matter if you used to be a Colonel or a Lance Corporal, you're expected to do whatever job you're hired for. And you don't get any slack or credit from some previous rank. Again, I retired as a CWO five and I worked with a former E3 from like 30, 40 years ago. And to our employer, we were the same. We're just a couple of prior military guys. And all they cared about is what can we do right now on this job from the position description that we were hired for. So be prepared to disconnect from your rank a little bit because it isn't going to matter a whole lot. I, I would definitely say, at least from the Marine Corps standpoint, like it is driven, I think, I would say on the enlisted side, maybe, well, I would definitely say being a restricted officer now has helped me get away from this, but I would definitely say it's driven to the enlisted and the the unrestricted officer side of the house, the abrasiveness. Like, I think that's really being considered the moto guy, right? The, The status quo mentality of Marine. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing overall, but what I think is, is making sure you can, you can, you can drop that at the drop of a dime. 
because if not, you're going to know Don and HR very well by first name. And it's not because you guys are buddies. Yeah. And, and back to the loyalty thing, right? So I, I tell you right now, the job I'm on, I love it. I love who I'm working with, but I'm always one bad week from leaving. All it would take was a new boss who came in and didn't talk to me like I wanted to be spoken to. I'm gone. And that's true of anybody on the team. If you have got to the point in your career where you have skills and you have the, some, some flexibility to move to different jobs, you're not going to put up with a lot of crap. So if you're the one dishing out that crap, even if you're in charge, if your team keeps quitting, you're not going to get it done because you have a team because you need the team to get crap done. And if you drive them all away, you're gone because it's only going to take a few times for your boss to realize that you're the problem. So um, yeah, yeah, the, the abrasiveness thing, your people skills, if you get by in the Marine Corps on yelling and intimidation, that's, that's not going to work for you. I don't know. Maybe there are some jobs in America where that works, but I can tell you in corporate America, not really. Yeah. And, and I, that's what, that's one thing I definitely try to stress, especially to the, the newer NCO Corps and the newer staff NCO Corps. Like it took me a long time to understand this because of the Marine Corps that, that I grew up in. And I came in 2006 and went to Iraq in 08, went to Afghanistan 09, 10, and then again in 12. So like that mentality and, and, and being with some of the units I was with, like, that yelling and needing immediate obedience to orders was a real thing. So like, that was what I thought it should be everywhere. You went in the Marine Corps and quickly learned um, when I went to Okinawa as, as a brand new staff sergeant with uh, Com Squadron 18 over there. And I had just been a sergeant in a staff sergeant with 1st Battalion, 8th Marines and 6th Marine Regiment. The way you, the mentality that you have there and try to try to kind of focus on is not the same mentality you can try to focus in and build your team on over there and in places like that. I think that definitely helped me. It took me a long time to realize that. And that's one thing I try to share with, with the new, the new generation of, of, of NCOs and staff NCOs is like, Hey, look, the, the, the status quo, what used to be known as the Marine Corps, like being that drill instructor type all the time is, is not the way to be anymore. One, this new generation of America doesn't respond to that type of personality like whatsoever. It's a completely different personality as, as a culture than what it was in 2006 when I came into Marine Corps or when you came in, in, in the mid nineties, right? It was just a, di a completely different mindset and, 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 and just culture in general. So being able to, to be flexible and kind of change with, with the times and, and, and changing your, your mindset helps out a lot too. So Jason, I, I, I want to thank you again. It, it's been an honor having you on the show, man. Um, I would definitely say you, this will probably be one of the better shows, I think. And I'll cut this part out just so, <laughs> but, um, and, and I, and I, and I, and I say that just because of the experiences that you've had, right? Like, and that's why I say not because you're better than any other guest, right? But I, I think just because of the experiences that you've had and the experiences that you've been able to share on here, having, a long military career, a successful military career at that, and then transitioning and seeing that, hey, look, my first job out, it just wasn't what I wanted to do or what I wanted to be, and taking the courage to, to change it, to move on to something different. And, and that's what I tell Marines too, especially the ones that are still pretty young in, in service. Is like, I think it's a harder decision to leave military service than it is to stay in it. I think, I think it takes way more courage to transition out on your own accord than it does 
to make the decision to stay in re-enlisting, I think is the easy button in a sense, um, because it's job security. You already know what's expected of you. Um, the Marine Corps by far has been the easiest job that I've ever had in my entire life. And I joined when I was 21. So I had, I had some jobs from the time that from when I graduated high school until I joined the Marine Corps, I would definitely say this is the easiest job by far. Cause you literally get told what to do, how to do it. Um, you get told what to wear and how to wear it. Right. Like you get told where to be and everything. So, yeah, I, I think it, it definitely takes a lot more courage to transition. And that's why I think this one is going to be one of more valuable episodes because of your experiences and, and, and how you've shared that and the advice that you've given based off of those experiences. Thanks, Joe. Any, any last closing comments or anything like that before we get out of here? Nothing else with regards to show content. Just I appreciate the chance to get on here and speak with you. I wish we got a chance to work with each other more before I uh, moved on, but uh, best of luck in your transition. No, absolutely. I appreciate it, Jason. Thank you again for listening to another episode of The Bunkhouse. I also want to thank all the listeners out there for all the support as well. I'm going to leave Jason's information for LinkedIn in the closing section of the show notes. I'm also going to leave a link to another podcast that he was a guest on. If you, if anybody wants to contact the show, there is a new website out there for us. It's www.thebunkhousecast.com. That link will also be in the show notes. And there's also still original uh, means of getting a hold of us, whether it be Twitter, Facebook, um, or anything like that. And also, there is a new email address as well, contact at thebunkhousecast.com. On the website, you go to the contacts page, fill out the, the contact form, and there's a little survey on there as well to the right. If you could go in there, fill it out. Give us some five-star rating here on whatever podcast app you're listening to us on. And I want to thank you again. And as always, be the light in someone's dark. <laughs>